Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. One of the most important aspects in choosing an advisor is to find an advisor that looks after people like you. So if you're a 20-something looking to get into your first home, you don't want to be going to an advisor that specialises in aged care or retirement planning because there's so much to keep on top of that you want someone who's looking after people like you. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Now, I'm a firm believer that we all could do with some financial advice. Most of our lives are too busy to be bothered with the administrivia involved in tracking and maximising our major investments like super and retirement planning. Joining me today is Vince Scully from Life Sherpa. G'day, Vince. G'day, Phil. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to be here in the Mojo Dojo Casa House of Life Sherpa. That's right. And that'll be the last Barbie reference at all. Okay. Except I do have a Ken story I oh, wanted to share with you. can get going then. <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to have a quick look and a, a discussion about financial advice in general because, you know, there's a lot of people who, many Australians that need financial advice. We've got a shortage of financial advisors, which we've covered on the podcast before. But let's go back to the very beginnings. At what stage in life should people start thinking about seeking some sort of financial advice? Well, everybody needs financial advice. The question really comes down to, can I get the advice I need at the price I'm able or willing to pay for it? Mm, Because it is a bit expensive, isn't it? It can be expensive. And that's partly due to regulation. It's partly due to the fact that you need qualified humans to do it generally, which means that traditionally most people have waited till they either inherit some money or are ready to retire. 
Mm. And two-thirds of all financial advice clients in Australia today are retirees, mm. or over 55, so mm-hmm. not necessarily be retirees, but they're certainly thinking about it. And the challenge as an industry is how do we make it available to everyone? Ultimately, there's six big financial decisions that you need to make, you know, where you live, what you drive, how you prepare for the unexpected, how you provide for your retirement, how you make a living and who you marry. And all of those decisions except potentially choosing a partner, could benefit from financial advice. And the challenge has been that it's been expensive. And if you can't get it professionally, where do you get it from? Mm. You know, we may, many of us get it from our parents. And of course, the thing that got our parents here is not what's going to get us there. And so are our parents equipped to give us advice that works today? And uh, if we're not getting it from our parents, we're getting it from the internet, whether it's social media or Google. And that's got a whole bunch of other challenges. A whole different levels of quality in that advice situation. And, you know, being able to assess its reliability and Mm. possibly more importantly, its applicability to your specific circumstances. So I would say that everyone should have it. Mm. The question is, how do we get it affordably? Mm. Mm. And um, at the risk of blowing... Spooking my own book here. No, please. <laughs> um, that was the whole point of creating LifeShop, it was mm. to make it affordable. And, um, you know, there are lots and lots of people who aren't prepared or able to pay three, four, five, six thousand dollars a year for advice. Mm. But at $547, it's available to a lot more. Because there's a big difference between the kinds of advice people need. Most people, when they're starting out or going through their accumulation phase, basically need investment advice. But there's financial advisors, planners, I'm not sure even what to call them, who will cover the whole range of someone's financial life. I mean, I'm thinking actually the very first guest I had on the podcast was a fantastic financial advisor who was also a qualified lawyer, qualified accountant, and he could really package up advice. But these are for people who are high net worth individuals in their 50s who are looking to work out how they're going to move on to the next stage in life. This is completely different to what someone in their 20s or 30s might be looking for, isn't it? Absolutely. And and this whole conflation of financial advice with investment advice, Mm. I think does most people a disservice. And when most people think about financial advice, they think about investment advice. And that's actually a relatively small part. So if you look at the total fees and commissions paid in in the industry, only 14% of that relates to non-retirement investment. Mm. and that you need to sort of separate out the investment advice piece, which today with ETFs and managed funds and all those sort of things is a much easier exercise. And the real challenge is how do I link that to the life goal I'm trying to solve and the implementation of the investment piece is actually the smaller part of the actual advice and to some extent, it's becoming a little bit of a commodity. So if you look at you know all of those pieces of advice, is, I used to joke in my previous business that there was the two best pieces of advice I could give anyone was to pay off their home and buy their wife flowers, <laughs> and I couldn't get paid for either of them. <laughs> and, you know, it's a bit flippant, but it, there is a germ of truth in there in the sense that the things that make a difference in a 20-year-old or 30-year-old or even 40-year-old life are much different to the difference you can make to a 
60-year-old or 70-year-old or an 80-year-old. That's not to say they're any less challenging or any less technical, but they're different. So for a 20-something, you know, getting your super in the right place, getting started on the journey towards saving for your first home, getting your spending behaviour under control, and getting the right insurance before any of those health risks start to play out. So it's much easier to get insurance before you get sick than after you get sick. Mm-hmm. So early 20s, perfect time to get those things sorted. So you know, they're the big things. So the things that we work with 20-somethings 20, 20 on, it's about you know, paying off your debts, building an emergency stash, getting your budget under control, insurance, putting your soup in the right place. Mm. So although spending your super might be 40 years away, there's a few things that you can do now that don't cost you very much, mm. but will pay off in spades later. Whereas if I was dealing with a 60-year-old or 70-year-old, there are things I can do today that will make a massive difference today. Mm. You know, about how you start, how you structure your the income from your super. Oh, because that's and, so complex, isn't getting it? The, <laughs> getting the you know right yeah. amount of age pension. Just going from that stage where you've been a pay as you go, yep, employee so your whole life, those, yeah. and then just suddenly you go, oh, what do I do now? That's you really need and, and advice, that's don't you? And that's I think why yeah. we see that two-thirds of financial advice clients being over 55 because mm. that really concentrates the mind mm. that when you get to, I don't see too much at Life Shopper, but previously you, know, you see a lot of people get to the mid-50s, kids off their hands or at least mm. out of education, stop paying school fees and now have some money and they realise, oh, actually, retirement's potentially less than a decade away. Am I prepared for it? What mm. am I going to do? What does retirement look like? And there's that last-minute sprint but if you start crawling in your 20s, mm. that last-minute sprint becomes much less stressful. Mm. I might push back on that a little bit about not learning from your parents, but I've noticed that people who have learned from a very early age to look after their money often do have a better attitude to money than other people whose parents might leave them be. Oh, I think I distinguish between behaviour and knowledge. Yes. That absolutely we learn our behaviour from our parents, even mm. if it's not conscious. Mm. So that's, I would distinguish, that's different to the traditional imperatives in in uh, financial life. So yep. if you're started to, if you were adulting in the 70s or 80s, buying the biggest house you could afford or even one that you couldn't quite afford made a huge amount of sense because inflation was 15%. And so inflation would fix the problem. Mm. If you do that today... Inflation is going to take a long time to fix the problem. So you're going to be under stress for a long time. So those sort of what I call myths and half-truths, you know, rent money is dead money, never borrow to buy a car, never use credit, put aside 15% of your income for retirement. All of those rules of thumb that might have made sense in the high inflationary 70s or the the go-go years of the 60s don't really make sense today. But actually, behaviour... Agree all along yeah, that. Yeah. And people often react against their parents. So if you have particularly frugal parents, mm. people often become spendthrifts. Yep. <laughs> so how those behaviours play through and where you fit in the family order. So middle children are often much more willing to spend than first or third children. So you see all those sort of family things play out. So mindset's critical. Yep. Behaviour's critical. But I don't think we should be expecting parents or schools to deliver the knowledge piece of that equation. 
In fact, there's now a lot of evidence that suggests that people who do get school-based financial education actually make worse decisions mm. than those who yeah. didn't. Because there's a lot of people calling for more education, yeah. financial and, education um, and literacy for you know, so school-age students. If anyone is um, interested, there's a book called um, Pound Foolish, mm-hmm. um, written by an American. So I'm not quite sure why she calls it Pound Foolish, um, mm-hmm. not Dollar Foolish. Maybe you could put a link to it in the, in mm. the show notes. Yeah. But she talks through this whole financial literacy, which is a word I hate. Mm, mm. It is. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. Financial education at schools does improve financial knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if you go and test people a few years later, they do know more than their peers. Where it doesn't actually flow through, though, to better financial decisions. And the only real way to get better financial decisions is to be able to have the right advice delivered at the point of making the decision. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's horrendously expensive for many people, and that's not a place that the government can really play. <laughs> can you imagine having the, the government financial advisor that you had to talk oh, to them before you bought Oh, we're going to be talking house. about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're um, talking about that very soon. So, um, yeah. so that's the challenge. And, then, mm-hmm. you know, more knowledge does not equate to better decisions. Mm. And the key thing is here is better decisions. Hang on, hang on. Wasn't it Warren Buffett who said you know, the best investment is your investment in your own knowledge, I think? It was yeah. One um, of, it's one of those uh, nostrums we hear yeah, in, and in this financial world. I mean, if knowledge was was success, then you know, we'd all have six-packs. Mm, mm. This is not a knowledge problem. This You're bringing is, Ken up again. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is not a knowledge problem. This mm. is a behaviour and action problem. Mm. That's not about maths. That's not about the technicalities of how a fund is structured. No, no. It's about how do I align my life goals with my spending? Mm. So goals and value, personality values and goals are far more important than the intricacies of what a MER and ICR mm. or a mm. tax rate is. Mm. That, I think, is a bit that gets missed in a lot of this debate. Okay, so the first step when you go and see a financial advisor is to have a risk assessment. That's a very first, isn't it? Well, it's often the first step in the process yes. because that does drive a lot of the relevance of the advice. But I, must, I think I sort of step back a bit mm. before that. Too. Oh, okay. So how do I choose an advisor and what questions should I ask? Oh, them? okay. Yep, some questions. Um, yep. So one of the most important aspects in choosing an advisor is to find an advisor that looks after people like you. So if you're a 20-something looking to get into your first home, you don't want to be going to an advisor that specialises in aged care or retirement planning <laughs> because there's so much to keep on top of that you want someone who's looking after people like you. So that's step number one. And possibly the worst question you could ask is, how much are you going to make me on my money? That's a bit of a red flag, both for the person asking the question and for the likely answer you're going to get because anyone who tells you that my portfolio will do better than anyone else's or my fund is better than that fund is either ignorant or delusional, that the market will deliver the returns. Mm-hmm. The job of an advisor is to make sure that those returns end up in your pocket. And how do they do that? They do that by focusing on the things that matters. Sure, there's some mechanical things that have to be done about you know, asset allocation, rebalancing, and keeping track of fund changes, regulatory changes, tax changes, all those things. They're relatively mechanical to some extent, that the real smarts is about how they're going to help you improve the quality of your decisions and the consistency of your behaviour against those decisions and 
making sure that whatever it is that you invest in aligns with your goals, time horizon, and of course, risk profile. Mm. So they're the, they're the sort of the two big ones. Then of course, you should be looking at how they're licensed. You know, are they licensed through a, so everyone who gives financial advice needs to be licensed mm-hmm. and they will be on the financial advisor register. And you can check both of those readily. Yeah, and advisor ratings as well as a yep. website that you can go to to get some information. Now, bear in mind that advisor ratings is a paid service. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that the advisors with the bigger profiles are probably paying for it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. No, so it's a bit of a beauty contest, it, isn't it? it? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But who they're licensed through, so many advisors, it's sort of falling a little now, but if you go back 10 years... Well over half the advisors in the country were licensed through a few of the big fund managers mm. and yeah, AMP and IWF, what are they called? Insignia. Mm. So between the two of those, they licensed probably more than a quarter of the advisors. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not more than a quarter, but a goodly chunk. And then you add in some of the bigger groups. So those groups where they also manufacture the products, so they're either an insurance company or a fund manager or a superannuation provider, that's not illegal, but it should give you calls to think, am I being recommended a tied, a tied product? product that, um, and is that necessarily in my best interests? Mm. And so that's how they're licensed. The next question is, how do they make money? Mm. And of course, this is a costly exercise, so it's not going to be free. But how it's charged, I think, is is relevant. So are they going to charge you a fixed fee? Are they going to charge you a percentage of assets under management? There's no commissions on products. There are no commissions commissions on on investment or superannuation products. They've been gone for 10 years. And yet, I see this on the internet day in, day out. Typical Australian consumer still believes they exist. Mm. And they haven't existed for a decade. Mm. Mm. There were some that were grandfathered in, but they're all gone now too. Mm. So... If you walk into a financial advisor, they cannot get a commission on investment or super products. Mm. But you know, is a, a payment as a percentage of assets materially different? Well, it's materially different because, firstly, you agree to it mm-hmm. and you can always stop it at any point. Yep. And it's usually independent of the product. It's usually collected through the product, but it's independent of the product. Mm. I dislike asset-based fees for a few reasons. Firstly, it ties the value of the advice to the size of the pot. Mm -hmm. And whilst it does cost a bit more to manage twice as much money, it doesn't cost twice as much. Mm. There are risks that rise with volume. There are costs that rise with volume. So professional indemnity insurance goes up with the volume of funds that you manage. Mm -hmm. So there is an extra cost in managing $2 million compared to $1 million. But it's not twice as much. Mm. And it can be easy to get confused that, you know, 0.25% as a fee, what does it actually mean in dollar terms? If mm. you've got a million dollars, that's $2,500, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 25? No, it's $2,500. Yeah, Whereas if you've got $100,000, it's $250. Mm. And $250 doesn't buy you an hour of someone's time. <laughs> mm. So... You do need to look at it in dollar terms and say, what value am I getting for that? And the ongoing benefit is a critical part of it. So financial advice is not an Mm. event, it's Mm. a process. And so getting it right today doesn't mean it's right tomorrow. And the challenge for most people is to say, well, what's changed between today and yesterday? Mm. The things about yourself you know, 
So you know if you got married or divorced or had a kid or had a kid made away from home or finish high school and you stop paying school hmm. fees or you got sick and you can't work or you've got a new job, you've got a promotion, you've got more pay. All of those things you can keep a, an eye on yourself and you know they're happening to you. Yeah. The things you don't know, uh, well, what's happening in the regula- regulatory world? Mm. What's happening to my fund? What's happening to taxes? What's happening in the economy? Now, you don't necessarily want to be reacting to today's news cycle, but some of these are pretty critical. So, Well, especially if legislation changes, it can affect... Yeah, one yeah. really good example of that is during COVID, the minimum withdrawal from super was reduced from 4% to 2%. Mm. So some and, and that's to take a, yeah, so a pension. Yeah. So if you had a yeah. pension, to get tax-free pension, there's a minimum annual withdrawal period, mm. as withdrawal amount. And during COVID, the government halved it. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't on top of that as a retiree, you may very well have taken more out of super than you really needed to, mm. giving up some future tax benefits. Mm-hmm. So being on top of that could make thousands of dollars of difference to mm. your future and it's unreasonable to expect people to be right on top of this day in day out mm. and so those are the sort of things where ongoing advice makes a, a big difference so that you've got someone who's constantly on top of this what they do day in day out they read the new pdss they get the bulletins on what happens in the parliament yeah and Weak strategies to manage. They get the those. emails from the dealer groups, or often exactly. the dealer groups so are looking after the back end and yeah. saying, "This is what's happening now today." But to yeah. treat it, you know, the number of people who most, well, us among most advisors, people will walk in the door and they go, "I just need help choosing a, a portfolio today." Mm. I look after it myself, and the challenge with that is if you don't have the skills, experience, or knowledge to choose it today. Mm which presumably is why you're seeking advice. I mean, this, this person obviously concluded that I can't do this myself today. Mm. I need some professional help. So if you can't do it today, why do you think you can do it tomorrow? Mm. Mm. And uh, that's not being derogatory. It's just that that's not what people focus on day in, day out. Yeah, that's right. And so, no, unless you've got a passion for and you investing. Forget, you know, yeah, there's like, people, who, people who have got a passion for investing, they love doing it and they want to do it and they'll be going over whatever they're looking at, whether it's charts or company reports, you know, they, they'll just eat that stuff. Yeah, exactly. But if you're not like that, it's best just to be a bit more yeah. passive or let someone else help um, you with that yeah, and so, understand that difference as well. And so there... Yeah, if there's value in taking advice today, mm. there's value in having an ongoing relationship, mm. which brings us back to the cost. So many people would make that statement thinking it's going to cost me a lot of money to mm. manage it ongoing. And that's where you know, the industry, I think, needs to get its act together. A mm. Bit. Mm. And that's why... Life sure exists. I just want to get back to because many sun bronzed Aussies go to the Money Smart website yep. to find out information. And there's a page there which is they have a study where Rhett, this is our fictional character. It's not to be confused with the barrister from Brisbane. Is there a barrister from Brisbane? Yeah, I don't know. This one. Okay. We'll watch out for any um, defamation. We won't mention him by name. Okay. Now, Rhett has $400,000 to invest, and it will cost him, according to this, when they break down all the costs and going to see a financial advisor, this actually says that it will cost him $13,660 in the first year and $8,000 each year thereafter. 
And this is on the Money Smart website. Does that sound a rather inflated it figure? It does. And I think it conflates a few things. I actually had a look at this hmm. the other day when you, you said that you were going to come in. And so it breaks down the, the fees across a number of areas. Yeah. There's some um, insurance in there. I know. Yeah, that, but so that's not a huge amount. So let's yeah. just start, so start off with the upfront fees. So mm-hmm. the case study says RET will pay $3,500 for a, a, a plan and $1,500 for an implementation fee for $5,000. That's marginally above the average according to advisor ratings, but not materially. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it depends on what's in there. I assume this is talking about a fully comprehensive fee Mm. rather than purely investment. But that's, you know, there or thereabouts. Whether it's value or not for rent, Mm. that's a separate question, but that's probably not a million miles from the typical price. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. Life Sherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. If you just go to the Money Smart website yep. and look for RET or yep. finding a financial advisor, yep. I think is the section, mm-hmm. you can find this. Money thing. Smart RET will actually get you there in Google. Oh, okay. <laughs> R-H-E-T-T. That's right. So upfront, yeah, whether that's value for him, another question, but that's probably not a million miles away from the average for a full suite of plans. When we come to the ongoing fee, this is where it starts going a bit off the rails. So they talk about a fifty, a point five percent ongoing advice fee. That's probably not too far from. Um, but that's assets under management. That's 05 percent of assets under management. So in Rhett's mm-hmm. case, that's two. Not a fixed cost. Yeah, two thousand dollars a year. So you know, if he's going to get six hours work from his advisor, mm-hmm. yeah, six six times three hundred and fifty dollars is two thousand dollars. That's probably not a million miles from the average. And then we start getting on to product costs. The first one they talk about is a platform administration fee. Hmm. And they use 0.75% or $3,000 for RET. That's probably a bit out of date. It now. is. The cost of yeah. platforms has come down it radically. Has. Yeah. He probably should be paying closer to $1,000, mm-hmm. maybe 1200 Which brings me on to the point about this is a quite a controversial one about mm. platforms. And I think it's important to understand what they actually do and why you need mm. them. Mm. Well, it's a legal structure within um, which investments are yeah, held. Is I mean, that the case? Well, the main, the main purpose of a platform, and it's a word that gets bandied around a bit. So that could be as simple as a brokerage account with Comsec, mm. right? That's a brokerage platform. And mm. You need one to get access to the stock market. So if you want to buy an ETF or an LIC or a share, mm-hmm. you need one of these things. Yep. That's at its very simplest. Now, when you step up from that, you need some tax reporting, mm-hmm. right? So in order for you to make useful decisions around should I change that investment for that investment, you need to know what's the tax implication of making that decision. Mm-hmm. And so you need a tool to track all of that. And that could be a 
platform or it could be a piece of software like ShareSite. Mm-hmm. So ShareSite's going to cost you nineteen ninety seven a month, I think, mm-hmm. for the one that's got the yeah. CGT reporting. Mm-hmm. So $20 a month, $240 a year on $100,000, that's 0.24%. Mm-hmm. So that's the absolute minimum. The next thing a platform can do for you is give you access to managed funds mm-hmm. without meeting the individual minimum investment limit. Mm-hmm. So we use a, a, a small cap, small company fund in our portfolios, mm-hmm. which has a minimum investment of $20,000. Yep. And so if you're going to allocate maybe 5% of your money to this particular fund, it means you need to be investing to make the minimum yep. and a platform can allow you to access that without meeting that threshold. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is it does is give your advisor oversight on what you're invested in. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm working with a, a client, I need to be able to see what you what you hold, what it's worth, what your tax components are, mm-hmm. and that visibility. You're now narrowing down the number of products that will give you that. And then the final bit it gives you is the administration of that. So having your advisor having got insight to what you've got or visibility in what you've got, mm-hmm. they, the software will then allow them to generate the recommended trades and mm-hmm. the documentation to go and seek your consent to do that. Mm-hmm. And so all of that has a cost associated with it. And traditionally, that probably was in the 0.75% range. Yeah, yeah. Today, it's more likely to be at RETS balance, maybe 025 mm-hmm. But you need a piece of software to do this if you're going to use it and advise it. And is this what's often called a RAP? Yep. A um, RAP platform? Yeah, because you hear that word. Yeah. yeah. So there are a few variations on this. There mm-hmm. are traditional wrap platforms mm-hmm. or IDPS, Investor Directed Portfolio Services, is technically how they're legislated mm-hmm. or colloquially a wrap account. Yeah. And that usually has a custodian associated with it. So mm-hmm. the, the underlying funds are held by a custodian. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a Macquarie wrap, it, your assets will be held by Bond Street custodians, mm-hmm. which should lower transaction costs. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the ways you get around these minimum investments. Mm-hmm. And it certainly makes the administration much more sim- much simpler. There are now some products that are non-custodial. Mm-hmm. The one that we use is a non-custodial product where you hold it on your own HIN, but mm-hmm. this software is all working in the background that delivers everything a wrap does as far as you and your advisor are concerned, mm. but it's still your hin. So some brokerage platforms will often champion the idea they've got hins and that they're chess-sponsored. So you actually own something, and then the others are custodial ones. The ones where you can get fractional shares or fractional yeah. investments, for example, are custodial. Yeah. Um, I mean, the rest of the world operates on The rest of the world is custodial, world. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and to some extent, the hin is really just a record in an ASX system that says you own this. Mm. And the real record is the registry. What you're seeing is an extract. So it's largely a beat up Mm. by, probably shouldn't mention the brand. No, we won't say the names. But a number of discount brokers Mm -hmm. who were looking at a way of differentiating themselves from the newer, cheaper kids on the block. Yeah, yeah. But for most people, this is a... 
academic nicety mm-hmm. and comes at a cost. Mm. So let's just summarise. I know you want to go on and talk a bit. Or do you want to finish no, no, off about rep? No, I finish off the rep. Okay, point. let's so talk about on the rep point. Yeah. Um, that $3,000 that Money Smart reckons rep should be paying is probably closer to 1000 to 1500 mm. mm. But you need a platform in mm. order to track your taxes, mm-hmm. make meaningful decisions, and get guidance from your advisor. Yeah. You just can't do it without it. And just, just on that point yeah. about the cost of it, I mean, I have personal experience of a rep, particular RAP platform, and it's a Macquarie platform, yeah. and I think the funds under management's around about $190,000, and it's $700 a year. Yeah. So that's like yeah. such a small yeah. and typically they fee have, compared to that. Yeah. And typically yeah. they have a flat fee or a minimum fee, mm-hmm. Usually around the sort of three to five hundred dollar range, yeah, yeah. and then a percentage. Mm-hmm. So at Brett's level, if you use the platform that we use, you'd be paying four hundred probably, mm-hmm. five hundred maybe. And these are things worthwhile talking to an advisor they about are. as well, aren't they? Yeah, and obviously because most people don't even understand what these fees are or what what they're yeah. getting for them, you know. And it's not an incremental cost because if it didn't exist, mm. your advisor would have to do a huge amount of administration work. Mm. So if you didn't pay $500 or $1,000 to Macquarie Wrap, yeah. the admin work that your advisor would have to charge you for, mm. in fact, it's almost impossible to do the job without it. You might be able to get away with it by you know, inviting them into your share site account, <laughs> but you then still have to do the work out what the trades are, get consent, mm-hmm. send that to the broker. So all of that is admin cost that you would otherwise have to pay for, and it would be in your advice fee. And then it goes on and talks about investment management fees, 0.75 as an investment management fee. You know, if you're looking at mostly index-based funds, that's probably a bit on the high side. Mm. Our portfolios would range from about 0.2 to 0.5 or 0.6 in terms of management fees. But these are the management fees of the actual investments. The underlying funds. So if you go and buy... So you've got got the financial advisor up here, then you've got the platform under there, then within that platform you've got... That's right the investments themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's another $1,000. So there's probably $2,500 in RET's bill that mm. probably is a bit above market. And then this is where it really goes off the rails. It starts talking about insurance premiums. Now, I don't know how old RET is, but a $1,000 insurance premium is a, um, a very small insurance premium. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, if that's the 66% commission, his insurance premium might be $1,500. I don't know too many people with accumulation funds of $400,000 who are young enough to get away with a $1,500 insurance mm. premium. So a comprehensive insurance package for most people in the accumulation stage of life, so people in the workforce, should expect to pay between 2 and 5% of their income mm. for a fully comprehensive insurance premium. So say if you're making $100,000, that's somewhere between two and $5,000. Mm. If you do a, if you're a bit older, you, you smoke, you do a blue collar job, you'll be at the upper end of that range. Mm-hmm. If you're a white collar, younger, healthy professional that doesn't smoke, you'll be at the lower end of the range. And so if we take someone earning $100,000, $2,000 premium, built into that is a commission payment. Mm. which is 0.6% in the first year and 0.2% in subsequent years. And so if you take a $2,000 premium, that's $1,200 up front. So how many hours worked as $1,200 by you? Not a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this article talks about the advisor charging this commission. That's not actually how it works. <laughs> there is a commission built into the product. Mm-hmm. 
It's not charged by the advisor. It's in the premium and it's paid by the insurance company out mm. of your premium. It is possible to do what they call dial it down. So you, the advisor can say to the insurance company, please do not pay me commissions on this. Mm-hmm. And they will reduce the premium to the customer by about 20%. Mm. But you now have to write a check to pay for the advice. And that will end up being more than 20% unless you've got a really big premium. So mm. chart, it, it's a nonsense. And since around the time of the Royal Commission, they are now standard. So every insurance company pays the same rate. Mm-hmm. So there's no real incentive for an advisor to choose one product, one over, product over, over another. another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a potential incentive to sell you more insurance than you need. Mm-hmm. And that obviously comes down to asking your advisor, well, how did you come to that number? Mm. And at LifeShop, we cap the commission. So if the commission exceeds the cost of doing the job, we'll give it back to our members. Yeah. So that takes that one away. So it's, it's unreasonable to add that. Well, if $1,000 is the commission, then it's unreasonable to add it in here. Mm-hmm. It might reflect income for his advisor, but Rhett's not paying that to his advisor. So that first year number should probably be seven, eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right? But obviously, yeah, what are you buying? How much handholding do you want? Mm-hmm. How complicated are your affairs? If you've got a self-managed super fund, you've got a family trust, you run an incorporated business, it's going to That's, cost you more. Yeah, yeah. If you're a PAYG with a relatively uncomplex affairs, then it should cost you less. Mm. But this article's got a lot of press coverage, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it needs updating. Oh, it's had press coverage, has it? Yeah. People have been if, talking I mean, about the, it. Yeah. There's been a lot of coverage on this on the various blogospheres. Oh, okay. And most people sort of miss the point here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's not about this is fee gouging. Mm. It's really a question for threat as to what's he getting for this and you know i would be pretty confident that the difference between taking advice and not taking advice Mm -hmm. and this is not about investment returns this is about him being better off he's probably worth 12 twenty thousand dollars a year Mm. for someone like like red it's very difficult to do a before and after mm. because looking at the counterfactual is pretty hard to find because yeah. once Rhett's done all these things, you go, oh, I would have done that anyway. <laughs> and, but it's not about investment returns. So the yeah. argument to say that by paying $13,000 in fees, I will earn $13,000 more on my investments is mm-hmm. the wrong way to look at this. Yeah, It's about saying, well, what is the quality of your decisions going to do to your overall life outcome and to generate twelve to fourteen thousand dollars in benefit for someone four hundred thousand dollars is almost a no brainer. There's a mm. lot of research around this from people who you might not expect to mm. be in favour of advice. I mean the Vanguard have a study which they say advice is worth about three percent on your overall benefit. Now you'd expect that Vanguard might be anti advice, mm. even though they they've got a good direct to consumer business. Russell who you might think would have the opposite bias, came up with more or less the same answer. Mm-hmm. And the and they might be biased the other way. So if you average those two out, you go, well. And there's a really good study from the Institute of Long- Longevity in the UK, which comes up with an even bigger answer. Mm. So there is no doubt in my mind, and I've seen the impact of this on people's lives, that there is value there. Obviously, if you can get it for a lower price, mm. without sacrificing quality, that's even better. But I'm not sure that this article does anyone any favours. 
We'll get back to the show right after this brief message. Why am I buying, holding or selling a share? If you can't answer that basic question, then you don't have a plan. The best investors are ruthless in executing their plans. I've been fortunate to meet many great investors on the podcast. Tony Kynaston is one of the best. He has a clear and systematic approach to investing that is honest, sensible and methodical. It's called QAV, quality at value. QAV now offer an excellent light plan for only $29 per month. You can follow their buy and sell recommendations and learn the ropes. And the first month is free using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Go to qavpodcast.com.au to sign up. That's qavpodcast.com.au using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. Please read the QAV FSG and consult a financial professional before investing. I receive a small commission for services I recommend, and I only recommend services I use myself. I've had communication. A listener got in touch with me who's um, started listening to the podcast and going backwards. Uh, so hi to Ravi. I think it's Ravi or Ravi. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And he says that he strongly believes in financial literacy and investing basics. That should be a subject in school. But we've already <laughs> covered that. Sorry about that, Ravi. But he was talking about a story where one of his friends had paid 3 k to an AMP financial advisor 10 years ago, and he'd agreed to do a dollar cost averaging into a fund. 150K, I'm not sure exactly how the 150K fits into that. 10 years later, my friend found out that the financial advisor had forgotten to move the money, and it was sitting in cash plus kickbacks, and we're going yearly to the financial advisor, and the money kept depleting. Further to the story, they took it to the ombudsman and they were awarded $1,200, even going by conservative 8% gains over 10 years. 150K would have been 323K. Anyway, there's, there's a lot mm. of details. But the, it sounds like that there was a problem with the advisor just forgetting to do something while still charging fees and that the system failed to punish the advisors. That does surprise me. Um, mm. Sorry, it doesn't surprise me that that occurred. I mean, certainly if you go back a decade, there was a lot of that store stuff. Well, not a lot. That happened not infrequently. I wouldn't say it was wow. rampant. Yeah. And this is, goes back to my point about, you know, why it costs more to manage mm. $2 million than $1 million. Because if you do that, yeah. it's going to cost you a lot more to fix it. <laughs> Forgetting it just shouldn't happen. But I would have, th- usually in those sort of events that the what's now AFCA, I assume by ombudsman, he means the the old FOS, the old uh, Financial Ombudsman yep. Service, mm-hmm. which has now been morphed into AFCA, AFCA. the Australian yep. Financial Complaints Authority. They are a very consumer-friendly jurisdiction, generally doesn't involve lawyers, and they will usually look to keep you whole. So not having invested for a decade sounds like much more than a $1,500 problem. So mm. I, I don't just, know the facts, but, um, but, but... But I would suggest that it's a problem for the consumer that they should be checking their statements. Yeah. I mean, I mean surely this would show up on a, a statement you would somewhere. You so. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a bit like the she was asking for it argument that... I know that, but you, if you're you going do really in, have if to... Yes. There is a responsibility yeah. to ask questions mm. and if... I mean, surely after a year, you'd go, how much have I made? You yeah. know? <laughs> and why is this amount sitting in cash on yeah. my statement? Mm. So, and obviously people, some people want an advisor to take care of everything mm. and implicitly 
trust their advisor. But and I think you know there is a, a duty to both on the advisor to explain it um, mm. and also because if they actually had a meeting. And yeah. the advisor looked at that and went, you know, in preparing for that meeting, he would have noticed, why is this all in cash? Yeah. So something terrible has gone wrong in that, in mm. that case. Mm. There is no doubt that errors do occur from time to time, and most advisors are really good at fixing them. And certainly AFCA are generally very consumer-friendly, mm. and I would expect that the penalty in the case, assuming the advisor was, $1, was still in business yeah. and had professional indemnity insurance, which you should do, yeah. or work for one of the big groups, that that would have been bigger. So without knowing the details, it's hard mm, to go mm, into it. Yeah. But you know, this is a two-way street, not excusing any particular behaviour here, but you know, if you are paying someone to look after your affairs they should be explaining to you what's going on here. At least on a yearly basis. Yeah. And yeah. You know, one of the big things that I'm a really strong on is that if any of my clients or our members resort to the, my advisor put me into this when asked mm. why they did what they did, we failed in our job. Mm. So mm. that our job as an advisor, which is part of making sure these returns end up in your pocket, is that you understand why that's the right decision for mm, you. Mm. It's a bit like buying a car. If you go camping every weekend, you probably need a four-wheel drive, mm. which is more expensive than a two-wheel drive. You don't need to know how a four-wheel drive works, but you need to know why it's worth paying the extra for, for one. Yep. And that's exactly with this, with advice. Like why is this the right answer for you mm-hmm. and why that other answer might be the right answer for Uncle Bob? Mm-hmm. If your advisor does a good enough job at explaining that to you in words that are meaningful in your life, mm-hmm. then you'll feel more comfortable and you'll end up with a better answer. Lots to unpick there. Yep, there is. Now, just to uh, finish up the interview, Ravi also picked you up because I mentioned to him that I'd be seeing you today and we'd be talking about this. And he said, um, in your last interview with Vince, he claimed the ASX 200 is the highest gaining index in any country. Not sure how this was measured. BSE Sensex has compounded at 13% for decades. Anyway, it's minor trivia, but he just wanted to pull you up on that point. Oh, it's a really interesting point. Mm. And whenever you're looking at returns, you've always got to ask yourself, compared to what? Mm. So if anyone tells me, my investment in X did really well, Mm. I go, well, compared to what? Mm. So whenever you look at a return... You want a benchmark. You need to look at what is actually measuring. So what I was talking about Mm. was the real return that is after adjusting for inflation, in US dollar terms, since 1900. Right. And they're not my numbers, they're Credit Suisse's numbers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Australia returns 6.8% real mm-hmm. in US dollar terms mm. since 1900. And it's above, I think Johannesburg is number two. Yep. Now, so A, it's in US dollar terms, not in Australian dollar terms. Mm-hmm. So to an Australian investor... That may or may not be relevant because they're going to be spending Australian dollars. Mm. So an Australian dollar return might be more relevant to the assessment of an Australian investor. Yep. And inflation adjusting makes yep. a lot of sense because what you're concerned about dollar is, is how much more is it done against? US dollars worth 90% less, something like that, maybe 99% so, less um, in that time period. And, of course, in 1900, Australia was a very different place mm. And that includes some you know, really bad times through the 30s. 
mm. absolute boom times through the 50s. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of world wars. Well, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why Australia has done well because it wasn't badly impacted by the either world war. Mm. I mean, sure, we lost a lot of our population in yes, the first yeah. war, but you know, the country wasn't bombed substantially. We didn't have to divert GDP to rebuilding. Mm. Mm. We didn't spend a lot of money on armed forces, and so that will contribute to it, as well as our place yeah. in the. You know, the fact that from 1900 to now, the country's gone from you know, being a British colony mm. to being the 12th biggest economy in the world. Mm. But you know, Ravi is right to point out that the BSE Sensec has done particularly well. Since 1979, it's actually returned over 15% in nominal terms mm-hmm. in local currency. So what is BSE Sensex? Sorry, That's I... the top 30 or 50 shares on the Indian Stock Exchange. Oh, okay. The Nifty 50. Well, it's... I don't think it's the actual Nifty 50. Right. There's a whole bunch of different things, but this is the broad-based oh, okay. index. And in Indian rupee terms, since foundation in 1979, it's done about 15% a year, mm-hmm. not adjusted for inflation. Yep. What that looks like in US dollar terms, adjusted for inflation is probably, I don't know, 9 or 10 maybe. And that's a period in Indian history where India has gone from being a relative economic backwater mm. to being the fourth or fifth biggest economy. Yep. Well, sort of in terms of population anyway. Mm. So the exchanges that were covered in those numbers that I talked about were the 23 developed economies that are included in the MSCI mm-hmm. developed index, <laughs> which India isn't part of. So you know, you've always got to look at what does that statistic actually mean and is it relevant to me? Mm. So if I'm investing in a bond portfolio, comparing it to the ASX 200 makes zero sense. Mm. If I'm investing in a global basket of shares, I probably should be looking at that in Australian dollar terms, whereas the the various indices may be reported in US dollar terms. So you've got to understand the numbers. You've got to understand the period. And active fund managers are horribly guilty of Mm -hmm. picking the period. Mm. And sometimes you, know, you pick a July 1 date compared to a June 30 date can give you significant a massive difference. difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, make but, sure you're comparing like with like yeah. and make sure that you're comparing it against something that actually matters to the outcome that you're trying to achieve. So well done, Ravi. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ravi. And Vince Scully, thank you very much for inviting me into your studio so I could invite you onto my podcast, Shares for Beginners. It's been great chatting with you again. It's been great. Thanks for Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.